Did you know I wrote a book? My book, Diabetes Sucks, You Can Handle It, is your guide to managing the emotional challenges of type 1 diabetes. And I want to offer you the book for free. You can download the book by going to www.thediabetespsychologist.com forward slash book. That's www.thediabetespsychologist.com forward slash book. You'll join thousands of other people who have read this book and taken the skills and tools they've learned from this book and applied them to their lives with type 1 diabetes. You can download the book now and start implementing the tools today. That's www.thedibepsychologist.com forward slash book. Welcome to the Diabetes Psychologist podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Heyman, and I invite you to join us as we talk candidly about the emotional challenges of living with type 1 diabetes. We'll give you actionable strategies to help you face these challenges head on, reduce your stress, and most importantly, live a full life without letting diabetes get in the way. This episode of the Diabetes Psychologist podcast is brought to you by Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Hey there, welcome to the Diabetes Psychologist podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Heyman. A couple of weeks ago on the podcast, I had Dave Walton on, and Dave talked about how to get involved in clinical trials. And I got some questions from you guys about what it's actually like to participate in clinical trials. So I decided to bring somebody on to tell you all about it. Crystal has been living with type 1 diabetes since she was 9 years old. And over the course of the past 28 years, Crystal has been involved in over 100 clinical trials. In this episode of the podcast, she tells us all about her experiences in participating in clinical trials, how it's helped her, the benefits she's gotten, and also the process of what it's like on the ground in the clinical trial. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode, and here's my conversation with Crystal. Crystal, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So start off, why don't you tell the listeners about yourself and about your diabetes journey? Ooh, um, so I have lived with type 1 diabetes since I was nine years old. Um, and when I stop and kind of do the math, I'm like, oh my God, that's almost 30 years. That, that's a huge portion of my life. Um, I think it's, it's 28 and some change since I've been diagnosed. And um, thinking back on like my diagnosis and the experience of, of being told that I had diabetes, it's really interesting, like, like that actual diagnosis story and then my journey and my experience with diabetes because I of where I work and how I have um, woven diabetes into my identity. I think there's kind of like two pieces to it. So okay. Let's hear diagnosis about. story. Okay. So diagnosis story. Um, I'm the eldest of three. My parents divorced when I was really young. And I think that my mom was like really busy all the time. And so we missed, I think my family missed some of the, the signs of diabetes um, until at one point when I was nine and I was in the fourth grade, my mom looked at me and she was like, oh my God, your clothes are too big. Why are you drinking so much? Why are you, you know, peeing so much? The classic stuff. Um, but I think she, there was a lot of like guilt and shame around that for her when we finally got to the doctor and we've unpacked it since. But I remember her being worried about my health and her telling me that we needed to go to the doctor and that she wanted me to, to see my, you know, to see my GP or see, you know, my primary care doctor at the time, my pediatrician. Um, and I 
could feel her fear and feel her shame. And so I was terrified going into that doctor's appointment. So I negotiated with her this like nine-year-old little crystal said, mom, I'm going to tell the doctor what my symptoms are. I know what my symptoms are. And being the eldest of three, my parents divorced. Like, I think it took on a lot more looking back, you know, as, as a child. And so I remember after school, she picked me up. We went into the doctor's office. We had stopped um, and got like ice cream maybe after school with my brother and my sister. So it's mom and three kids in tow. And it's like the 4.30, 4.45 appointment. At the end of the day, the doctor's office, you can see, you know, the receptionist and the staff, like closing things down, turning lights off and go in, have my appointment. We're sitting there. And I tell the doctor, I'm like, yeah, my stomach's been hurting a little bit. And, you know, I'm really tired. I really like naps. And um, my clothes are really big. And I think I must be losing weight or getting taller. And he goes, okay, well, let's, you know, let's measure you and let's do your height, whatever. Um, and he also knew that my parents had just like been through a pretty like traumatic divorce experience. And he was like, maybe you just have a nervous stomach. It seems like you've got a nervous stomach. And my mom is standing there right next to me as I'm sitting on the, the bench and she's tapping my shoulder because I had negotiated and she had agreed <laughs> that I was going to tell the symptoms. Um, she goes, well, you're leaving something out. Like, you know, you're, you're urinating a lot. You're drinking a lot. Like we need to make sure he hears these. And I think my mom had probably done some research on her own. There wasn't Google then. Um, and, uh, he goes, oh, and I just remember the look on his face changing and goes, oh, you know what? Let's, let's have to, you know, give us a little urine real quick. And so I remember glaring at my mother and just being like totally betrayed. <laughs> um, and so walked in there, you know, did the, the, you know, what you do and then came back and to check for ketones, right? Like it's really quick. But I remember coming out of the bathroom, going out, back into the, the, the office and at this point it's after five, they're clearing out, the door was open, lights come on. I hear the, the phone being picked up. I hear like a fax machine, you know, turning on. Um, and he gets down like on my level because I'm no longer sitting on the, the bench, but my doctor, he like got down on his knees and he held my hand. And I have this like very vivid memory of that and really appreciating like how he tried to connect with me as like a child and as the patient. But he looked at me and he was like, kiddo, I was wrong. I think you might have diabetes and we need to go to the hospital now. Um, and he goes, and you're in luck. I'm getting ready to leave. You guys are going to follow me and we're going to go there together. And I mean, I'm getting goosebumps like telling the story because it was such like a beautiful way, I think, like a really sincere and like respectful way to be given that news and, and less scary than I think it could have been and ha and was for so many of my peers. But um, yeah, it was really, really a moment. And I remember my mom and I don't know, my family talking about it later and feeling both really grateful, but obviously very overwhelmed. So. And I love the fact that you guys went out for ice cream before your diagnosis. <laughs> I remember when I, before I was diagnosed and I was 21, I went out and got a big thing of lemonade. I was thirsty and I wanted something to drink yeah. and lemonade sounded good. And then I realized that just increased my symptoms even more and made me even sicker. Oh God, no. And so like Mark, when I'm sitting there in the hospital afterwards and they're like trying to put an IV to get some fluids to get some insulin into me, I'm, I'm sitting there pleading. I had ice cream. This, it's wrong. I had ice cream. I'm so sorry. I ate ice cream. This is why I have diabetes. I really don't have diabetes. Um, I was just so scared. I think there's so much unknown um, when you're first diagnosed. And at that point, you know, there weren't CGMs, there weren't insulin pumps available. Um, so the idea of having to take injections um, 
was really scary. And that was why you stayed in the hospital for multiple days was to learn how to do that with yeah. confidence. So. so throughout your journey after your diagnosis, talk briefly about your journey personally and then also your journey professionally. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know anybody. My neighbor's cat had diabetes. My grandmother had type two diabetes, um, but I didn't know anybody else with type one. And I, for a year or two, like saw my, my peds endo and, and they kept encouraging us to go to camp, that there was a family camp. And I, I grew up in California. There was a family camp that we needed to go to. Um, and I was attending a new school and um, one of my classmates, her little brother also happened to have type 1 diabetes. It was the same grade as my, my little brother. And they also went to that camp. So it was really neat. Like we went as a family with this other family that we knew that made this potentially scary thing, like way less scary. And so that was a blessing. But I remember that first week, five days up in the mountains, um, looking at my younger brother and my younger sister. And I think when you're young, you want to be like everybody else. Like you really don't want to be different. And I remember looking at them um, and saying, I'm normal here, you guys, like, you're the weird one, and I'm normal. And saying that out loud and looking around, seeing other people like pull up syringes and, you know, vials and count their exchanges was just such like a pivotal transformational moment for me where I was like, these are my people. Um, they get me and I don't have to explain this really big and scary part of me, this like heavy part of me. Um, to these people. And I, I felt this like incredible sense of like safety and community. Um, and so I went to camp a couple more times as a kid and we ended up moving. So we weren't near the camp. Um, but then when I was in college, I, I think I was struggling with my, my management and just being, you know, frustrated at being a college student with diabetes. And I, um, decided to go and work at the volunteer to work at the camp, um, as a, as a camp counselor and, and a program director and an art director later on, because I, I knew that for me, I couldn't go and try to help others be, you know, better managers of their diabetes or to feel good about it and do it from like a place of hypocrisy. And so I think I was like, this is how I'm going to hold myself accountable to taking, you know, about taking better care of myself and just reprioritizing how diabetes fits into my life. Um, and I fell in love with like creating those experiences and supporting others on their own journeys as my own journey unfolded and ended up going to work for the nonprofit that runs that organization and um, worked at Medtronic Diabetes for a little bit and Asante um, SNAP, uh, the makers of like the SNAP insulin pump that's no longer around and now at the Diabetes Link. But um, yeah, education, peer support, it is, it's what made my life with diabetes what it is. Awesome. So the reason we are on the podcast today is because you have a pretty interesting story participating in clinical trials. And I want you to tell listeners, well, first of all, give us some background about what it is that you've done and then talk about what made you want to participate in clinical trials. I keep meaning to make a list, but I've been in 100 plus clinical trials. Like it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. It was, you know, something I got into in college in the San Francisco Bay Area, we've got, you know, big medical centers and research centers there um, doing really cool stuff in diabetes and, and type one specifically. And um, device studies is primarily where I've, I've spent most of my, you know, research time, but I can tell you about a lot of them, Mark. Um, the one that comes. Oh, so go ahead. Go ahead. 
the one that comes to mind as being like the most like wild was the Google uh, contact lens study where they were sampling my tears against, you know, capillary and then IV blood. Um, so they would poke your finger, pull a sample out of your, you know, your, uh, the crook of your arm, and then also pull a tear from your eyes to see what the correlation or the, the you know, comparative blood sugar was. And that was really cool because I was like, oh my God, this is new. This is exciting. Who has ever thought to do this? This is outside of the box. And I remember feeling really inspired by the physicians and the team that was curious about that. And I think from there, it was one of the earlier ones that I did. Um, and it was just neat to be like at the edge and to feel like I was doing something to make living with this better. Yeah, I'm sure you have lots of stories. What was it that made you decide that you wanted to get involved in clinical trials? Do you remember a moment or a, or a trial that, that really caught your attention and made you want to volunteer? I think there's two pieces of it for me. You know, honestly, as you know, a young adult, it was, I needed financial, like I wanted the money and I wanted to be able to, to have the extra cash that that afforded so that I could either pay for supplies, pay for rent, you know, go on a vacation. Um, and I remember thinking and talking with some of my other peers, I was like, you know what, Dicey sucks and it cost me a lot of money. So I'm going to take advantage of like that fiscal compensation, that aspect of it. But when I think about why I've done so many, it's, it's not about the money and why I continue to do them. It's truly about feeling like um, I'm doing my part to, to make this better because nothing comes to market. Like the FDA doesn't approve anything at this scale without people being willing to try new things and to explore the injector that you used for a pump site or to, to practice using the tandem pump, that very first, you know, touchscreen pump. And I felt like I had a, an opportunity to influence the long-term like health for myself, but, but the landscape for others. Um, and it was really neat to have that like platform and that opportunity to, to share my feedback. Um, a trial that stands out was one with the, I guess it's now, you know, the Omnipod 5. This was easily six or seven years ago. And I had never tried an Omnipod. My insurance didn't cover it. And I think that's another piece. I was like, I used to try all the cool things that my insurance doesn't cover in clinical research. And then I can make like a really educated and empowered decision when I go to, you know, decide which one to pay for or decide which one, you know, to advocate and fight my insurance for because I knew it was best for me. And we don't get to demo these things. There's no test drive unfortunately. And so I think for me, clinical research and participating in these trials was that opportunity. But um, yeah, this, this, this idea of like the Dexcom and the, the Omnipod working together was really exciting. And they had us kind of eating the same things, you know, and we were in the, the research house for three days, two nights, I believe. And I was with another group of other young adults with diabetes. And so they would, I think the, the clinical research centers would kind of match people and it was just fun to grow my diabetes community and meet new people and, you know, complain about technology, but also celebrate the things we like. It was just, it was really awesome. Take me through the process of becoming part of a clinical trial from letting people, someone know that you're interested to actually going to the visits and doing the work. And then afterwards, what happens? Yeah. Um, 
I think there's a couple ways to go about it, but like being involved in the diabetes community, being on those lists, you know, whether it's JDRF or ADA or the diabetes link, you know, nonprofits get a lot of, um, are really connected to these research centers who need people um, to participate. And so getting on those lists and seeing what's available is kind of fun. And you can also, I think there's like a website now that you can search for them. But um, once you get on the list, then you get on the short list with the clinical trial coordinators and then they start reaching out to you because um, I have learned that if you are compliant, because it's really important when you're doing research studies, like you have to do what the protocol says. Like if it says you have to check your blood sugar eight times a day, you poke your finger eight times a day and you wipe it with alcohol or you wash with soap. And I think finding people who are willing to follow the rules to like the T is really important because that's how you develop like a control, right? And I learned this through doing it and, and how important that was to being able to have research go to the FDA and not be rejected. So I felt like this grave kind of like responsibility um, to doing that well. And so you go in once they call you and they do like some screening over the phone usually or via email and they're like, tell us how long you've had diabetes. What's your current A1C? Um, what tools are you using? What insulins do you use? What other medications are you on? Do you have any associated conditions? Like really trying to understand your profile as a patient. Um, and then from there, you're invited to come into an appointment, a screening appointment. And usually those are also compensated. Um, and you sit down and they usually do some labs and they walk you through the IRB. So the IRB is this thick stack of paper where they're like, let's be really clear on what it is that you're agreeing to do. And so you understand what's both expected of you, but, but what you can expect of the research team. And usually that's like a really cool conversation um, where they tell you what supplies you're getting, when you're going to get paid, what, what the, the, the objective of the study is. Um, it's kind of frustrating sometimes, I think, when studies are blind. I love, you know, knowing how it works, but there are moments where you're like, huh, DEX says this, clinical trial thing says nothing. And you really kind of want to compare. And so it's, it's fun. But um, yeah, so you go through that and they tell you what to expect. Um, and then they usually send you out with tons of supplies. And you agree to come in and you schedule your follow-up appointments, whether they're, um, I think they're called clamp studies. When you go in and you usually have an IV in two arms and they're doing, you know, draws on one or infusing something on the other. Um, and you schedule those. And oftentimes they're like 7 a.m. until 5 or 6 p.m. because they want time to be able to, especially with CGM, they really want to see fluctuation in your blood sugar. So you agree to let them manipulate your blood sugar. So basically you say, okay, I'm going to come in in the morning. I'm not going to eat anything. And then I'm going to sit down and let you give me, you know, a large bolus of insulin or a large injection of insulin so that you can manipulate my blood sugar down into like the fifties. And that can be a little bit scary, but that's, that's part of it. And they're always there to walk you through and they talk you through like emergency protocol. And it's kind of neat to, to see how they can manipulate blood sugars with such precision. And like one of the doctors, he, he cuts glucose tabs in quarters. He's like, I know how glucose tabs work. And he's like, you're sensitive to glucose. So I'm only going to give you a quarter because if you go below this number, you're going to get disqualified. Your data will be disqualified. So they're walking this like really fine, you know, tightrope. Um, and so you're kind of sitting there cheering for your blood sugars and like the rest of the research team are too. And it's, it's this like really collective empowering experience. It feels really good. Um, and I learn more about how my body reacts to glucose. And I think other people don't get to do this in the same way. So 
yeah, I, I don't know. What else? Sometimes you get excited and get stuck wearing a technology for a while and you're like, I don't want to give it back. But um, there's usually a series of those kind of days and then, then it all comes to an end. My next question, I think you've already answered for the most part is what have been the mental health benefits or cost to you of participating in clinical trials? You talk about empowerment and t- talking about how you feel like you're contributing in a part of a community. Those are all really important. What else? Um, or anything else? I think diabetes can oftentimes like feel really powerless. And like, um, I, and like, you have no control, I think in some areas. And it's really neat to feel like I'm, I'm influencing change. Like I'm actually making a difference. Cause we like, we all complain about the technologies out there. They're not perfect. It's not a functioning, a fully functioning pancreas and beta cells, right? But I, I feel like this is my chance to have my, to, to have a say and to influence in some way, whether that's, you know, fake and false or not. Um, but it, it feels that way. And that has done wonders for my mental health because I'm not one to like sit back and just let things happen to me. And so this feels like a way where I can, I can have some sort of influence and control over it. So that's, that's really awesome. Is there any advice you give somebody who's thinking about participating in clinical trials or is on the fence? Yeah. I thought of one last like drawback to it, mental yeah. health, if that's okay. Sure. Um, sometimes they have you wear four CGM. Like there have been times where my stomach looks like I have like udders <laughs> and I've got, you know, four, four CGMs on me or four on my arms. And I think it's, it's, it can be really hard and it can affect your physical confidence. I know that people struggle. We all struggle with this when you wear just what you need to survive, but then you're wearing what you need to survive and then some. So there have been times where I've got like seven, eight, nine devices attached to my body at any given time. And it, it, um, it's definitely like affected my body image in some ways, like in the moment, I'll be like, Oh God, can I wear that outfit? Or am I going to accept this study when I know that I've got this like fancy event to go to, and I don't want this to show. And so I think taking that into consideration would be a tip. Um, but then the other piece is that it has also forced me to talk about it. Like people will look at you and say, what are all these things on your body? What are you doing? And I get to then talk about having diabetes from a place of like empowerment and teaching others. So it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, but your question about tips or advice. I think if you're curious, check it out. Like, there's no harm in having a conversation with recruiters. They really like, there's such a need for diversity in research and in clinical trials, like people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, races, ethnicities. Um, it's really important that, that everybody gets to participate and that they're represented in the research and um, give them a call and talk to them because they really want you to be in the trial. Like they need you to be in the trial. They have to hit certain goals. And so if it doesn't work for you, like talk about it. Or if you've got questions and you're afraid, talk about it. I think approach it from a place of curiosity and um and then maybe find a buddy. That's the other thing. Half of these trials like you do in groups, you know, it's not always just like one on one where you're like the only patient in the room. Um, but find a buddy and say, hey, I'm bringing my friends and we're gonna make this like diabetes fun day and get paid and yeah it's an IV but um it's not so bad when when you've got friends that's awesome advice 
before we go today, I want to bring this conversation full circle. And I know that right now you are working for an organization called the Diabetes Link, which is formerly the College Diabetes Network. And I want to hear about the transformation of that organization and what you guys are up to now. College and the higher ed system has um, has roots and a perception of uh, privilege. And that there are a lot of clinicians out there who have come to us and have said to us directly that they're using our resources and our materials for their 25-year-old, their 17-year-old, their 22-year-old who didn't go to college. He's not currently in college. And they were, they, they benefited from them, their, their relationships with their diabetes, their management improved, but that they also felt like it wasn't for them because of the branding. And so for us truly, like the diabetes link is moving towards this, this new identity that is truly about bringing everybody in and making a space for young adults, 17 to 27 ish. Um, with any kind of diabetes, because we also feel like if you have type one or you have type two, or you have LADA or Modi, we have more in common around like the struggle and the need for community and support and age um, specific and relevant resources that we can provide a voice to young adults in the like the broader environment and the diabetes ecosystem that sometimes gets missed in like the PED focus or um, yeah. Yeah, I think that fits in well with our conversation today about clinical trials because the need for inclusiveness, the need for bringing together diverse audiences and diverse participants is the exact same message that you guys are sending, which I think is amazing because the diabetes community is inclusive and we need to make sure that the, the tent is big enough for everybody to be welcomed and to be supported. Yeah. And it's really for us, it's just all about like showing up as authentically as possible and like honoring like that humanity and our programs are the same, you know, we're just trying to reach and make ourselves accessible to more people. We still do our chapter network on college campuses, but now we also have an online discord community for non-college attending um, young adults. And we're opening that up to high schoolers in the near future because they deserve that support too. And then we still have our educational resources. We're, we're moving away from the printed guide and now to this really cool online platform of a learning and a resource hub. Um, where young adults could see people who look exactly like them, you know, who are going through that same experience on video and hear from their voices, juxtaposed with clinicians and physicians who are saying, here's like the clinical best practice. But then you get to look at somebody and they go, yeah, I know what the, my doctor says and here's how I do it. And here's how I make diabetes fit into my life and not the other way around. Um, and I think that's really liberating and empowering. And then the last area for us in terms of our program offerings is leadership development where we have a next-gen fellowship, where we create opportunities for the top, you know, young adult leaders across the country to join up and attend conferences and to um, to network with each other and with other professionals and leaders um, and thought leaders in the industry to be able to make a difference and then to give back, hopefully in some capacity as they move on to their careers. So Amazing. Well, thank you for all that you do with clinical trials and thank you for all that you do with Diabetes Link. And I appreciate this conversation. Thanks so much. That does it for this episode of the Diabetes Psychologist Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor. Share it with a friend. Put a link in a text message or an email and send it over to them and let them know how much they would benefit from listening to this podcast. 
you sharing the podcast helps me get the word out about this podcast so more people with type 1 diabetes can benefit. I always love hearing from my listeners, so please feel free to send me an email to mark at thediabetespsychologist.com or DM me on Instagram at thediabetespsychologist. And of course, be sure to tune next Thursday for a brand new episode of the Diabetes Psychologist podcast. Remember, type 1 diabetes is not easy, but you can have an easier time with it. And I'll see you next week, same time, same place. Bye for now. Thanks so much for listening. For more resources, you can visit www.thediabetespsychologist.com. And be sure to sign up for the email list for access to exclusive content. I'm Dr. Mark Heyman, and tune in next time for the latest episode of the Diabetes Psychologist Podcast. Podcast.